Greetings, everyone. This is Christopher Messina at Messy Times. We've got a very special show for you today. Joined in the studio today, as always, by my co-host and master of enlightenment, James Langer. Uh, in addition to that, we have a, a tremendous guest, Justin Pearson from the Institute of Justice. Uh, as a lot of the long-term listeners will know, James and I are big fans of rational policy and people working things out politically, uh, and we are major opponents to anyone who tries to rig the administrative state in their favor. So with that in mind, we thought today's guest would be a phenomenal addition to the discussion. Uh, James? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just uh, thank you, Justin, for being here. And just a quick background on Justin, Justin Pearson. He's the uh, Florida Office Managing Attorney at the Institute for Justice. They do absolutely amazing work. And he also oversees IJ's national economic liberty efforts. But instead of me going too far in depth uh, into your background, Justin, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the Institute for Justice and uh, specifically what you're, what you're working on right now? Sure. Well, I have one of the greatest jobs in the world. I wake up every day and I sue the government. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I highly recommend I'm so it. jealous. I truly love what I do. Um, I work at, as you mentioned, I work at the Institute for Justice, uh, or IJ as people normally call it. Uh, we're the national law firm for liberty. We're the nation's largest libertarian public interest law firm. And that's just small L libertarian. We're just philosophically libertarian. We're not associated with any parties or, or candidates. Um, but we are the nation's largest firm of our type. Uh, we're up to over 150 employees spread out around our seven offices. Um, I run the Florida office in Miami, but we are a national cohesive law firm. So I litigate all across the U.S., as do all of my colleagues. And uh, we basically litigate in four key areas. Those areas are economic liberty, property rights, school choice, and the First Amendment. And we've been extremely successful. We're actually getting ready to have our ninth U.S. Supreme Court argument uh, in our previous eight Supreme Court cases, we won seven of them. So we have a tremendous track record. Uh, we win over 70% of our cases. And uh, me personally, I spend most of my time, as you mentioned in the bio, uh, fighting for economic liberties, where I basically fight for small business owners um, so that they can either start their business or, or grow their business or have the type of job they want, which means um, I take on a lot of things, a lot of problems like um, occupational licensing and certificate of need laws and, and things like that, barriers that shouldn't exist that prevent people from really pursuing the American dream. And just can, can you, for, all, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with things like certificate of need laws and mm -hmm. licensing, can you give a little concrete example of like, what does that mean to someone who's trying to run a business and all of a sudden they're told by the state? Well, so let, no. let's talk about occupational licensing. Yeah, I mean, it, that basically means it's a crime where you can be thrown in jail if you earn a living without having a government permission slip to work. And so, you know, usually people, when they think of things like licensing, um, they think of jobs like doctors and lawyers. Uh, but most states now have several hundred discrete occupational licenses. And so when you have several hundred different occupational licenses, the typical occupational license is not for a doctor or a lawyer. It's for a makeup artist or a shampooer or right. a dance teacher or a boxing timekeeper or a music therapist, which is apparently a thing now. And just the list goes on and on and all these things that should not be licensed, um, but are. And what it does is it destroys opportunity. You know, for people of means, what it can mean is just a giant headache where they have to pursue a training that isn't even relevant to what they want to do. 
But for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, it can be an impenetrable barrier where, where it prevents upward mobility and, and people from from you know, fulfilling their dreams. And it's just heartbreaking. And so I love you know fighting back against that. And, and why does the gov- these local governments and, and county governments and state governments, why do they have these restrictive licenses? You know, what kind of rationale do they uh, debate to come up with uh, having uh, a shampooer ha- re- being required to have a license? I, I am confused well, so by that. Yeah, well, you should be. If you're confused, you then you hair? understand. Because <laughs> right, it, it's confusing. Well, look at it's, it's not the way things are supposed to work. Right? The, the original rationale, the supposed rationale for occupational licensing is public health and safety. Um, but the problem is that's been totally disproven. Right? right. Both sides of the spectrum, mm-hmm. every, every group who's looked at it now realizes that these licenses, at least for the overwhelming majority of occupations, um, have zero positive impact on public health or safety or quality. And so really what you have is uh, what we refer to as rent-seeking behavior. Right? You have powerful uh, interest groups, basically the people who are already in that industry, who don't want anyone to be allowed to compete with them. And so they go to the legislature and they say, regulate us. Right. Ban people from competing with us. And the people in the legislature say, well, wait a second. Everyone in this industry wants this regulation. It must be good if even the industry wants it. So let's pass it. And it never occurs to them, or, or if it does, they don't care, that by you know creating this regulation, they're not actually hurting the people in the industry. They're protecting them from competition, which has all sorts of horrible effects that, again, now have led to this cool bipartisan agreement where people, everyone from President Obama to President Trump, I mean, how often do they agree on things? They agree on this, that occupational licensing does not help health and safety, that occupational licensing kills 2.85 million American jobs, that occupational licensing leads to higher incarceration rates, including, of course, higher recidivism rates, that occupational licensing costs American consumers to be overcharged by over $200 billion a year for no good reason. Like, And so you just have these undisputed facts that both right. sides of the political spectrum keep reaching. And that's why you get these, these you know, rare uh, combinations of allies, like even the Trump and Obama administrations, realizing that these things are no good. And so... That, you know that health and safety justification that is supposedly the reason for these licenses it's been um, totally disproven and so now it's just a matter of convincing legislatures to do the right thing and unfortunately that can be uh, uh, more, more difficult to do than some people might think now you just had a, a fairly significant win in what I like to refer to as the last free state in America Florida what <laughs> uh, we just had a pretty good one a good result out of that legislature is that right that's right. Yeah. So, you know, my favorite thing to do in the world is sue the government. Like, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I truly <laughs> Me love too. It. I wish I could just go do that. It, it, it is a lot of fun. It really is. And I don't sue for money at IG. We don't sue for money. Uh, my, my salary, it's paid for by our donors. Our costs are paid for by our donors. We just go around convincing judges to throw out unconstitutional laws. And, and, and I love it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there'll be opportunities where legislatures might be willing to do the right thing and so one of the things i also do is you know during legislative sessions i'll go and i'll talk to legislators and, and try to to get them to repeal law so then i can sue somebody else over something different and um for eight years i've been going up to tallahassee every florida legislative session because there were some very interested people there and who, who realized that they could create thousands and thousands of jobs in florida by reforming their occupational licenses um, you don't need corporate welfare, right? It, Florida was losing 130,000 jobs every year just because of occupational licensing laws. And this something similar can be said of just about every state. And so right. for, for politicians, even totally self-interested politicians who realize that, you know, uh, uh, 
increased uh, employment will often lead to re-election. Like there are there are just political reasons why they might support occupational licensing reform. And so for eight years, I was talking to them and working with them. Finally, this last session, um, it passed, and it was by far the largest repeal of licensing requirements in U.S. history. Uh, it reformed the occupational licensing requirements for 30 different occupations here in Florida, and it got rid of half a dozen of them altogether, where those, those occupations are just no longer licensed at all. Um, it has the potential to create tens of thousands of jobs in Florida. And, and let me give you one example. Um, we passed a, a similar reform, but much more modest. Just one, one part of the Florida reform was similar to something we passed in Mississippi a while back involving hair braiders, where basically right. Mississippi and Florida, for that matter, until recently, um, they were forcing hair braiders to spend a year of their lives and tens of thousands of dollars attending cosmetology school full time for a year, even though those schools didn't teach hair braiding. It made no sense. When Mississippi, yeah. because of IJ's work and, and, and some wonderful allies of ours in Mississippi, um, when Mississippi finally repealed that ridiculous requirement for hair braiders, almost 3,000 new jobs were created in a state with a population one-seventh Florida size. Now that was just one part of this reform that Florida passed that had over 30 parts. And so just we're going to see this this huge increase in, in job growth, but for, of course, other things going on like COVID. But that just that just creates even more reason why we need these regulations oh, repealed. Right. Because it's going to help Florida right. bounce back a lot faster than other states because they're getting rid of this red tape. And this isn't huge business. This isn't, you know, uh, the technology stocks that the government's talking about breaking up. These are tiny, tiny businesses and, and, and women and men that are trying to support their families and their children. And they're getting slapped with uh, a, a notice to, to shut down their businesses until they get these licenses in place. Is that, well, that's is the that best case on? scenario. Sometimes they just get arrested. I mean, we've represented people oh my who have been arrested. We, we represented a, a lady in Texas who was arrested for hair braiding. She, and when I say arrested, Gosh. I mean arrested. Police officers with guns and badges showed up and put her in handcuffs and took her to jail and booked her for the crime of hair braiding. Like, this happens. This happens. And, and it's not, not to pick on Texas. Unfortunately, there were stories like that here in, in Orlando. I've met people who, uh, excuse me, here in, in Florida. Uh, I met people in Orlando where, where th their barbershops were raided by full SWAT teams. Now, I, I want to repeat this because it's important. In Orlando, barbershops were raided by full SWAT teams on the suspicion of unlicensed barbering. Now, that's I, unbelievable. Right now, in all but likelihood, that unfortunately is believable, right? We've been covering right. this with 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 campaign finance laws, where right, you know, the Gestapo is kicking down a secretary's door at dawn, scaring the hell out of her children on the suspicion that she might have sent an email from a work computer. I and mean, this is part of the over policing and over militarization of law right, enforcement exactly. in this and country. When, you're exactly right. And what happens is once something's a crime that opens up the door to all sorts of things where even if they're not really interested in that particular crime, now they can use that to go after you for something else. And so, for example, when the SWAT teams raided the barbershops in Orlando, I don't think anyone really thought it was because of unlicensed barbering, even though that was the official reason. They were looking for other stuff. They didn't find any other stuff. It turns out that it totally everything turned up quite clean and, and it was all for nothing other than just harassing innocent people. But I don't think they were really doing it over unlicensed barbering. They were looking for other criminal activity and they used unlicensed barbering as a pretext to raid these innocent businesses and find nothing. And, uh, so would it be fair to say that, at least in that instance, unlicensed barbering was the domestic equivalent of weapons of mass destruction? 
<laughs> I guess I guess that's one way to put it. I have to admit, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. That's the first time someone has drawn that connection. But I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, it, the, the thing is, not to get too political, but I mean, people can disagree over whether, uh, you know, those, those weapons existed or, or what the rationale was. Or in, I mean, here, here, what you have are just... I mean, full, I don't know if anyone has seen a SWAT team in real life. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's like horrifying. these are basically militarized units, right? Right. Like, this, this is not like some you know police officer with a little nightstick. Like this is basically it's like you're getting invaded by an army raiding barber shops because at least wow. officially they might might possibly be unlicensed, and it turned out they were licensed. It's, oh, it's just, horrifying. Totally yeah, unrelated to the U.S. and domestic law. I experienced that uh, in Southern Africa. Uh, it was in a private context uh, where a lot of uh, companies keep um, on retainer companies they call armed response, which differs significantly from American sort of security forces in that they are former military uh, paramilitary units that come sweeping in. And one of them was called to a building I was in. It was the most horrifying three or four minutes of my life. And the shock and awe of the first 10 seconds was just incredibly distressing. And again, thankfully no one died and nothing was wrong. Uh, but yeah, to, to the fact that American police are doing that to American citizens and the pretext is barbering, yeah. that that is appalling. Right. That and so hopefully appalling. now, after this reform, one of the many, many good things that will come from this historic reform is we'll have less SWAT teams, um, uh, occurrences of SWAT teams running barbershops in Florida. <laughs> I can't speak for other states, right. but right. it is interesting to see kind of the, the way you see some states reforming and other states not. Um, Florida by far passed the best reform, but not the only one. Um, Arizona passed some reforms, Pennsylvania passed some reforms. Uh, the one in Arizona, it didn't get rid of licenses, but it universally recognized licenses. So that basically means if you get a license you shouldn't have had to get in your home state and you move to Arizona, you don't have to get it a second time. So it's something, it's progress, not as good as getting rid of right. the license, but it's progress. Uh, Pennsylvania got rid of a bunch of really dumb laws that prevented uh, felons, or excuse me, it, 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 that prevented anyone who had been incarcerated um, from getting a job, even if it was something unrelated to why they were convicted, and even if it was something they were trained for while in jail. Um, wow. And we, we see this issue as well in uh, California, um, where we're representing a firefighter who was a firefighter while he was incarcerated and helped put out California wildfires, but then couldn't get a job after he was let out of jail because you're only allowed to do that type of work with a criminal record if you're at, still incarcerated but not once you've been released into society and, and then you can't you can't get a job and it, it's no it's not a coincidence that you know w w in the states that make it the most difficult for people who have been incarcerated to get a job they have the highest recidivism rates right because if you can't get a job doing some something that's lawful you're more likely to turn to other means to support oh, right. yourself. Absolutely. So it's yeah, a, and so a serious just, law and order issue also. Yeah, and so we exactly. just we see these issues all over the country. And, and it's interesting to see some states are doing the right thing. Other states aren't. Like I know you guys saw the op-ed I published in the New York Post talking about New York and its you know shampooer license that it wants to strengthen. And so you, just, you have some states going in the wrong direction, some states going in the right direction. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people tend to be moving from one of those types of states to the other. We like to be right. fair and balanced. Like I got my last haircut in New York, and my ends are split. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, jesting aside, I mean, Justin, do you have any advice for our hordes of avid listeners who who hear this? Like, that's nuts. I've never heard of that before. Like, how do they right. get involved in making sure their state is not doing that? That they, you know, how, how does someone take a proactive stance uh, about about this issue if they feel that it's happening in their state and they'd like it not to? 
So, so a couple yeah. things. And also, also, how can they uh, support IJ at the same time? Well, I'll start with that one. Thanks, James. So if you go to our website, which is phenomenal, it's IJ.org. Um, there's all sorts of information there about all of our cases, all of our legislative efforts, um, what you can do to support us or just get involved or just learn about what we're doing, you know, whatever your preference may be. And so IJ.org is a wonderful resource. And then on top of that, talk to your, your, your legislators. I mean, w one of the biggest problems we have in um, getting these bad laws repealed is what's called a, it's a public choice problem. I don't know if you guys study public choice economics at all, but basically it yeah. talks about how politicians really behave, not how they say that they're, you know, what they say they're doing or what people think they're doing, but how they really behave in practice. And one of the right. problems that public choice economists come across is this problem of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. And so basically what happens is when I show up in Tallahassee and I try to get rid of the requirement that says hair braiders shouldn't have to go to cosmetology schools that don't teach hair braiding, what happens is all of the private school uh, owners, all the owners of the private cosmetology schools, they show up and scream like their hair's on fire. But society as a whole that's being harmed by this law, they don't because no matter how much you care about occupational licensing, if you're not one of the people directly affected, it's not going to affect how you vote in all likelihood. You know, when you're ranking your your issues in terms of choosing who to vote for, it's going to be way down the list. You've already made up your mind before you get to it. Um, you're not right. going to spend money, uh, you know, on some sort of grassroots campaign over this issue. Probably for most of society, like you're, maybe you might realize you're being hurt by this, but you're not going to be mobilized. But the people who actually, you know, profit from forcing people to attend school unnecessarily. They will scream bloody murder. They will spend money campaigning for people. They will call people. They will do everything possible to convince legislators to just make the business decision that they're better off not attacking this issue, that they're better off not addressing this issue just from a political reelection standpoint. And so in order to combat that, we need people to actually tell their legislators we want to repeal occupational licensing laws. We want to get rid of this unnecessary red tape. That's the only way to kind of balance things out. I mean, that, there's a reason why it took us eight years to pass this great reform in Florida. And it's because of the private cosmetology schools and other giant entrenched interests who show up to every single Florida Senate committee hearing and Florida State uh, House of Representatives committee hearing. And it's the same thing, it's true in other states as well. And so if you really, really want to um, uh, help us get these laws removed that shouldn't exist, Talk to your local state legislator. You know, oftentimes mm -hmm. they're available. Oftentimes these are people where they work full time in something else and being a state legislator is kind of a part time job on the side for a couple months every year. And so go talk to them. Talk to them about what they can do to repeal these laws. Ask them what they're doing to repeal these laws. It'd be nice for them to hear from people, you know, other than the ones, you know, screaming about getting rid of these laws, you know, like the, like the cosmetology schools. It'd be nice for them to hear from other people. And I'm only one person. You know, I have friends who show up as well, but there's only so many of us. And so the more people right. we can have emailing state legislators, calling state legislators and stuff like that, the more willing they're going to be to take on these issues because they won't just be hearing kind of one side of the story. Absolutely. That, that's helpful. Uh, it, it, you pointed out a very, very specific problem, which we're trying to, and thank you for that intro, we're, we're uh, discussing these types of issues around game theory and uh, different types of economic uh, disciplines in, in, in the show. And we come across this stuff all the time. I remember yeah. years ago, I did a small kind of import-export business, not related to licensing laws, mm -hmm. but again, distributed uh, uh, benefit and concentrated uh, concentrated cost, right? Or that, it's all the way around. Concentrated. Well, the, uh, I was thinking about the concentrated and, and, and cost. Is cost. Any individual person who is, you know, say you, you you've been on vacation in 
Asia and you have the wherewithal to not just buy a couple of trinkets, but you buy like four big pieces of furniture and 20 rugs and you get a half a container and ship it. Right. And it lands in the States and you owe taxes and duty. And the thing that put me through the wall, <laughs> which just drove me nuts, was you pay a private sector company called a bondsman. And their whole job is, is within a year of you paying your um, duty on your goods, if it turns out the customs official calculated the duty wrong, then the bondsman pays the difference, right? Mm-hmm. So you're basically paying a third party for a service you don't want that you shouldn't have to pay for because either customs can figure your duty or not and it should be the end of it. But again, you try to get that changed like this, you're irritated and the person can bring it in, it costs you 200 bucks, you're irritated and it's over. But how much money are you going to go spend on this to fix it? Exactly and there right. are a lot of problems like that in the society that cumulatively add up to a massive economic drag for all of us. Right, and that's how you end right. up with 300 occupational licenses. No matter how angry you get that you had to pay an extra $2 for your haircut, you're not going to be as angry as a cosmetology school owner who's going to fight back when you try to get rid of that law. And that that's the imbalance that's just inherent in the system because the average person doesn't have time to go attend no. state legislative committee hearings, but the, the private cosmetology school oh, owner he will. He really has a million better things to do. <laughs> yeah. No, right. I mean, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you actually wanted to, I'd have to question your sanity. Like, right. I've been to them, I mean, but it's part of my job, and it, it's not fun right, to sit there for six hours while they cover, you know, 20 different bills before they get to the one you care about. It's not a fun time, I have to admit. Right. But the entrenched interests are going to be there, and so if we're not there too, then we have no shot. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the wonderful things about Messy Times is we're giving individuals a platform and we're trying to give people insight into things that they might not think about in their regular life or what's portrayed in the media. I don't think the media has talked at all about the negative economic impact of occupational licensing, you know, and it has, once again, in our current times, a compounded impact on these small businesses given um, the state of the pandemic that, that we're living through. So, um, Justin, I th- thank you very much for, for your time and your wisdom. Um, once again, um, ij.org, if you would like to find more about the Institute of Justice or contribute to the amazing work that they're doing. I don't know, any final thoughts, Christopher or I Justin? I would just say that uh, what, what, a question and a thought. Uh, I think the first thought is the proof is going to be in the pudding uh, if we suddenly find out that our local legislatures have created a new media licensing law such that the Messy Times co-hosts have to go to 17 years of journalism school before they're allowed to talk about these topics again. I think we'll be getting somewhere. Um, uh, But separately and slightly less facetiously, just in general, and if there's no answer to this, there's no answer, but do you see a positive or negative trend for this in the states? Are are more states backing off these things or more people trying to layer them in? Well, it's definitely positive, it, and it all, it's all how you look at it, of course, but it, it's much, much more positive than it was until recently where licenses were just growing rapidly. That's at least stopped. You'll see some states, they'll try to pass a license here or there, but you don't have the, the rapid growth that we used to see, so that's good. And then, of course, you also see some states, like I mentioned before, literally getting rid of licenses, which used to be unheard of. And so we are seeing uh, some really positive trends. Now, that being said, you know, even this wonderful reform that Florida passed, it reformed about 30 licenses and only fully repealed about half a dozen, and it was the best ever. But when you repeal six licenses in a state that has 370 licenses, like one could be forgiven for saying it's just a drop in the bucket. 
And so it's all how you look at it. Like we're definitely making progress. Things are going in the right direction much more than they were before, but we also understand how big the mountain is that we have to climb. Wow. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate the work you're doing, and thanks again. And we'll point people to ij.org uh, repeatedly. Uh, and we look forward to having you on again when we've got another signal victory to, to, to talk about. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And as always, you know, this is a good example for people to turn off the news and turn on messy times because you're going to hear the straight story. Thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs>